Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everyone is having a great week. Okay, I just wanted to give everyone a reminder. The AAPS conference is this weekend in Harris, Michigan. Um, if you need to get a little bit more in information about that conference, you can go to aapscopper.com. Uh, we have a return guest who will be discussing his new book, and we may even get a lesson on how to make goat cheese. Uh, Barbara and I are very pleased when an author contacts us and says, oh, hey, you know, I have a new book coming out, and, um, you know, we'll you know, we try to uh, quickly book them, and that's what happened with tonight's show. Richard Thornton is an architect and city planner. He has written several books on Native American history and culture in Georgia, and he continued those themes in his latest publication, Native American, Native American Encyclopedia of Georgia. Uh, hi, Richard. How are you? I am just fine. How are you doing tonight? Oh, great. That's, that sounds like what? a very boring town. Actually, a very interesting book. <laughs> but I, it, like, it, I liked it. We're going we're, we're gonna to let everyone know how interest, interesting this book is. So, okay. We're, um, you know, you know, maybe some of the list. You know, while you know the listeners are getting ready to tune into tonight's show, perhaps they went to YouTube and listened to Merle Haggard's "Okie from Muskogee" <laughs> or Saturday. They're going to be, uh, you know, tuning in to hear all the important scores coming out of Tallahassee and Tuscaloosa. 
<laughs> so, you know, those town names sound like they're Native American, and you know, there's probably an ancient town there, but are those really the names of the towns? So uh, Richard is going to give us some insights into you know, the native languages of all these different cultures that you know, put their spin on it. I, you know, so those town names really aren't the original words. So, you know, it's going to, we're going to have a lot of fun looking at um, the evolution of uh, these words or uh, talk about uh, mounds and, you know, the grave goods and transatlantic crossings and geographical features from Georgia. So just kick back and enjoy the next couple hours. We're going to have a lot of fun, learn some new stuff. So, um, you know, Richard, um, you know, you make it very apparent that there are a lot of mistranslations and accuracies by the English and Spanish uh, explorers. Um, so, you know, let's kind of look at may, you know, what t- time period are we looking at uh, where this start, uh, the misinterpretation started, uh, you know, the maps that you present. So I'll let you take over from there. Sure. I think the first case of a major boo-boo in interpreting a, a Native American word is uh, Appalachie. When the first Spanish explorers hit the Florida Peninsula, they asked where would the gold come from. They said they pointed the north, and they said it's two weeks north among the Appalachians. They have lots of gold. And um, so you look at the maps from the 1500s uh, and 1600s, and the mountains of North Georgia are labeled the Appalachian or the Appalachian Mountains. Appalachian is just the plural of Appalachian. But, and then of course the, the Georgia Mountains have the purest gold in the world. They still have gold here. So that all makes sense, except that when the DeSoto expedition entered Florida, first uh, near Bradenton, which is south of Tampa, and then they kind of cut diagonally to the northeast across northeastern Florida and cut back west, they encountered a town named Appalachian. And so then they assumed that the name of the entire tribe in in the area around Tallahassee was the Appalachian. And of course, they didn't understand any of the language of the Appalachian. were telling, no, no, that's not us, that's not us, that's just a village. What Appalachian was was a trading village of the Appalachians in North Georgia. And so here we have today, 500 years later, everybody thinks that the name of the, the tribe down in northwestern Florida was Appalachian. They never called themselves that name. 
and they are totally unaware that the most advanced Native American culture north of Mexico were the Appalachians of northeast Georgia, who had, were really extremely advanced. They were, looked like people from South America. In fact, they spoke a language that mixed Mexican and, and, and Peruvian words, and they gave us the name Appalachian Mountains. There's also where they live is called the Appalachian River in northeast Georgia. But they're totally left out of the history books, yet they were the most advanced people of all. And they were the ancestors of the Creeks. When the British first settled Savannah, um, the Creeks said our name is Appalachia or Palachi, and the British ignored them. <laughs> They'd call them Creeks. So that's just one word. And, of course, that does, it has a major impact on the geography of the United States because originally Appalachian, which is the plural of Appalachia, just was just the mountains in north Georgia where the, the gold belt is. But over time, it moved farther and farther north, where now it's the name considered uh, by everybody that it's the name of the eastern mountains of North America. A major impact on the geography of the day. That's just one small example. I mean, I could go and I think there's like 423 words I uh, translated in my book. So, you know, just endless possibilities of discussing the ramifications of history. So where would you like to go yeah. next? Okay. Well, um, you know, there are – you start the, your book off by discussing some of the dictionaries, Native American dictionaries. Um, I did – I never knew that the, those existed. You know, you're – Working from some of them, uh, there were just a lot of people who really didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, so some were better than others, but uh, um, basically, get, all uh, the books, almost all the books, except by Galt in Georgia, are just taking um, folklore and repeating it as if it's fact. Mm-hmm. They didn't really research the words themselves. They just wrote down what someone else said in the past. And there's an mm-hmm. exception. There are two more recent books in Georgia from the 1960s and 70s where they actually got Creek dictionaries, but where they got in areas where it was not Muscogee Creek language, which is most of Georgia's not Muscogee Creek, it's Ishiti Creek, they couldn't translate the word. And so they just guessed. And so, again, there was, they did not realize how many different Indian cultures settled in Georgia. I eventually used, I think it's 24 dictionaries to translate the place names. A tremendous number of people from long distances settled here and, and gave their name to at least one place in the, in the location of the state. It was kind of a yeah, crossroad. Yeah, you do say that... Um, Okay, there's Albert Thomas Gatchett, and uh, his uh, Smithsonian book was you know, fairly accurate Creek Dictionary, but there's uh, also statements that you make like 
all the translations were accurate, but the information never reached the communities whose names had been translated. In fact, as we right. as will be discussed later, his accurate translations were ev- evidently ignored by other staff members in the Bureau of American Ethnology. So, I, I mean, you know, clerical errors like that just compound the the issues early on. It also affects how archaeologists are interpreted sites because they relied, if, you know, if the Bureau of Ethnology said this is what the, the this word means, it also affected how, how they interpreted who was who lived at that site. So it, it it created well, a lot of problems. Yeah, and again, and, 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 though, he he did not realize that there were many other ethnic groups here, and so some of his translations are wrong. Where he tried to make a word that was not Creek into a Creek word. So it, you know, he he did, didn't dawn on that so many people from so many parts of the Americas could actually settle here and had communities. You know, so he he was right when he wrote he translated Muscogee Creek words, but he got farther and further off from being right when he tried to translate non-Muscogee words. Yeah, and, and you know, since, since you were talking about ethnology, um, and. You, you also write, first, the Muscogees were originally a minority in Georgia. Many of the Creek place names are not Muscogee words, but are derived from other Creek languages. Secondly, he assumed that all place names from Atlanta northward were Cherokee. And there are very, and he say there are very few Cherokee place names in Georgia. So I, I, I did not know that until I read your book. And, you know, I just... I thought actually, you know, Cher- Cherokee yeah, were... And actually, there are very few Cherokee place names in North Carolina either, or Tennessee. It's just fascinating that most all the rivers in western North Carolina have creek names, or else English names. So it's uh, it's a problem that extends beyond the state's boundaries. Uh, but all these great... Uh, I, I think what I'll do is I'll give an example of what got me started in all this, so you understand how it does affect the belief system of archaeologists. Back in 2007, I was contacted by the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. They asked me to create architectural drawings of Mission Santa Catalina de Guali, which was on St. Catherine's Island on the coast of Georgia, a very famous Spanish mission. But they also wanted to make sure I did it right, so they sent me a box full of archives photocopied archives from the Spanish colonial uh, library in Seville, Spain. Uh, And then they also sent me archaeological reports, and I started noticing that these archaeologists working on the coast of Georgia were calling words that were definitely not Creek words, Creek words. They talked about the the people on the coast speaking another dialect of Creek. Well, they know they were not, absolutely not Creek words. and it took me years and years and years. We're talking about 2007 to when I wrote this book. To be able to translate their words, I kept on going farther and farther away, purchasing dictionaries to find a, one that would translate those place names on the coast. And it turned out that most of the people on the coast were from South America. And that drastically changes one's interpretation of what the mm-hmm. artifacts you found. And also found that the you're familiar with the Taino of the Caribbean. 
they had a major presence in Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee. Tennessee actually means descendants of the Taina. So in other words, they were oh. up in Tennessee too. Okay. What other books I'd... say is Tennessee is believed to be a a creek word meaning unknown. Well, that's because they didn't fall it far enough, you know, to get to the why did the creeks call it call that land Taina Sea, you know, Taina Sea, and it's called it's where the Tainos lived. Oh, that is make starting to put things into perspective. Yeah. Okay, and you know, you just mentioned, uh, you know, one of the phrases you just mentioned was from uh, the coast of South America. So, yeah. so pretty, they actually came beyond the coast of South America. They, there's people from eastern Peru in the Amazonian basin mm-hmm. uh, settled in the southeast. Yeah, and yeah, so. That's one of the subjects our listeners really enjoy are you know, these transatlantic or long-distance uh, migration-type stories. So, yeah, we need we need to address the how much of this South American. Influence has been found in Georgia, and you, know, you do have in your book. It was also going the other way as well. So, uh, you know, Richard, can, could you give us a little bit more background on the Mayan it it sauté language? It's, it's, that's, a, uh, that's a language distinct from what was spoken by most of the Mayas in the Yucatan Peninsula. And it's a Mayas probably came from somewhere else earlier, but over time they picked up some Maya words and it blended with their old language. They probably were from, say, Ecuador, Peru, right there originally. But they became the foundation that built on top of an earlier immigration by people from Peru. So the culture of the Creeks was really a mixture of Peruvian and southern Mexico. And that's exactly what my DNA is. I have... No North American Indian DNA. All of my DNA, indigenous DNA is either from southern Mexico, or basically they call it Maya, uh, for no one from eastern Peru, or Sami from northern Sweden. And, uh, you know, it's a different culture uh, that creates, that might explain why they were building large pyramidal mounds and cities when. Uh, Native Americans, other parts of North America were living a more uh, hunter-gatherer type life. They were in front of different people. I got a better story than that. You, you know, you're talking about South America. Now, this is going to blow okay. some people's mind. This is one of okay. the biggest puzzles I've ever had, in, linguistic puzzles I've ever had in my life. One of the most powerful tribes on the Altamaha River, which is one of the largest rivers on, in eastern North America, most people don't know that. I think it's number th- third largest in North America, in the east on the east coast. Um, was the Alekmani, and they, what the French uh, colonists at Fort Carolyn said, is that they grew uh, trees, the the uh, quinine tree, cinchona tree. And then they'd gotten very wealthy by selling the bark of the cinchona tree all over the southeast. 
because it cured malaria and, and it cured many other diseases. Like when I had a, a tick infection about 30 years ago, I had to take quinine pills. So it, it was an all-cure-all medicine. They got very wealthy from this mark. And I said, that name, it just doesn't buy. I got dictionary after dictionary after dictionary, both in North America and South America. Nothing matched it. Because we knew the meaning of the word because the gentleman who was captain of Fort Carolyn, René de Laudière, wrote that it meant medicine people or medicine men. And I said, That's, it just doesn't, I can't find anywhere in South America where it's like except that, that the Creek word for doctor is alec. So that kind of matches it, you know, like alec mani. So the Creek modern Greek word for doctor is an or a healer is alec. So that, that part, but the mani is nowhere in South America could I find a mani meaning people or men or anything like that. And then I remembered uh, there's a bunch of tribes in northwestern Germany who are the ancestors of the Angles and the Saxons whose Name was be like Germani, Alamani, uh, Stomani, and I said, wait a minute, no, that couldn't possibly be. They couldn't have come from Germany, but actually, Alamani is an archaic English word meaning medicine nobility or medicine man. Mani is the plural of man in Old English. So among the many people who settled on that coast, was probably a boatload or several boatloads of people from what was then southern Denmark, the ancestors of the English. Now, how about that? <laughs> Very interesting. And you also mentioned that there are some uh, Gaelic, Irish words um, oh, yeah. found in... It found in the native languages as well. So, uh, you know, so if you know people are traveling from uh, like uh, Denmark, England, it's not all that far to Ireland. So it's it's possible. So, what is some of the evidence of Irish or Gaelic words? Okay, um, the most important is gi, which is the word for people or tribe. It's used as a suffix in uh, Iroquois, uh, Algonquin, Shawnee, Cherokee, and Muscogee. It's in all those languages uh, that's straight Irish, but I've also found that several of the tribes who became members of the Creek Confederacy actually had the same name as traditional Irish Gaelic tribes in Ireland, and their names are on the landscape today. Um, like the Tuka, who were originally up and around Highlands, North Carolina, through there, Sapphire Valley, that means uh, principal, and it's a word used today in modern Gaelic. Principal, that means principal people. The Curahi. Um, like Curry Mountain near Tacoa, Georgia, that is the Curry, which is the modern day name of Curry and McCrory and all those Irish names oh. from that same, same root. That was a tribe in in the, in the thing, and then the um, 
then the southwestern part, um, County Kerry, you know, that's, of course, Kerry is a very common Irish name. That is, there's also a uh, division of the creeks that had that name, too. And so they were right out of the It's amazing. It's hard to believe, but, I mean, the words, the words are there, and it all matches, all matches, um, Syntax and everything, it has the same meaning. It's just probably what happened is groups, fairly small groups of people immigrated from both Ireland and maybe Scotland and certainly from southern Scandinavia, and they intermarried with indigenous Americans. So over time, they just looked like full-blooded American Indians, but their their roots are people who arrived with new ideas and new energies mm-hmm. that, that became a tribe out around that. Um that's, that's a lot of Native Americans take that hard to believe that they're not pure-blooded American. But when you look at the genetics, it's very hard to find any American Indian with more than around 38 to 40 percent American Indian DNA. Everything else is from other parts of the world, which me is telling us that they carry their mixed-blood people, and that the Native Americans really are a new race, complete, created by people from many places. Well, and you know, we cannot rule out uh, trans-Pacific uh, arrivals as well. No, I'm I'm part Polynesian. And it's not just me; it's my whole family. In fact, what's really weird is that our Polynesian is labeled Maori. You know, the people of um, New Zealand, which mm-hmm. may mean that they came here first and then went on to to settle New Zealand because I think they were here before they were in New Zealand. I mean, how else do you explain the substantial Polynesian DNA? As though they were here. Now, also, we should say that my uh, coordinator, my thesis, my, uh, excuse me, fellowship in Mexico, Ramon Pinachan, told me that they thought Polynesians came to Mexico before American Indians and that definitely the tribes located between Los Angeles and the tip of Baja, California, were Polynesians. And this has been documented now. They've been able to do DNA tests on their skeletons, and they were Polynesians. There's also Polynesians in southern Mexico. When they came, they don't know. But, um, you know, that's... He believed that it was not a radical idea that they they just saw the cultural influences of the Polynesians on the Americas, and then they saw skeletons that were definitely not American Indian skeletons. They were Polynesian skeletons. They'd find them, you know, in certain sites. So they were convinced that those people came also. Okay. Well, well and you know, you may know Rick Osman. Um, or at least heard of Rick. Um, He has the book uh, Graves of the Golden Bear, and he argues that um, uh, like the Ninth Roman Legion um, was pulled off of building Hadrian's Wall. There's evidence that they came to 
the the Ohio River Valley, probably settled more around the uh, Louisville Falls Falls of the Ohio area. Then they kind of reappear like twenty five, thirty years later. Um, but if we go with Rick's theory that there were actually Romans here, it could explain why we do have words like aqua for water mm-hmm. in, in the native language. Uh, I, I thought that, that that was an interesting section of your book. It, it fits in with well, what, the way, I don't people. have any theories. I really don't. I mean, you know, I got my critics will say, well, that's just your theory. I don't have any theories. I just follow the evidence where it is. So I'm not going to mm-hmm. say that just because you find Roman coins in a cave in Kentucky, they have to be the Ninth Legion. And in fact, the Ninth Legion shows up on the German frontier several years later, so they didn't come here. But uh, what I have found that you cannot deny with is that there's six and a half pages of words associated with water in the Muskogee Creek Dictionary that have as their root the Latin word for water, aqua. But aqua is not the word for water in Muskogee. Then the actual word used by the Muskogee Creeks for water is ua, I pronounce it ua or ui. Well, that's Illyrian from the other side of the Adriatic Sea from Italy. Uh, I in fact, I'm finding a lot of Illyrian words at the core root of Muskogee that's not in my own Creek language, which is Ishiti. Now, Ishiti is basically a dialect of it's a Maya. It's a Maya language. But the, the Muskogee Creek language, I was finding these, all these words that were root words from Illyria. So I wrote a friend of mine, Don, Dr. Don Yates, who's a geneticist and owns the DNA Research Incorporated. And I said, Am I crazy? But I'm finding that at the core of Muskogee are Illyrian and Latin words, and he said, no. He said, that's exactly what we're finding genetically, that they're tracing the core of the oldest genes in the Muskogee Creeks to Illyria. And he said, there's a reason, that that was the homeland of the Sea Peoples. The, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but they were uh, kind of like pirates, invaders that... They destroyed most of the, the Bronze Age civilizations in Eastern Europe and actually ruled India for a while. So and what we have in Georgia is a lot of ethnic groups near the coast that when you translate the word, it means sea people or ocean people. So it all ties in. It does not make any sense logically, but again, there's no other explanation for these foreign words from the other side of the Atlantic meaning the same and being pronounced the same. If they were just, you can't say just because bat means a bat, bat in English means the same thing as bat in Maya, because bat in Maya means boy. Uh, and in English it means like a baseball bat. It says you can't just say because two sounds are the same. It has to be the meaning and the sound, and, and they mean the same mm-hmm. on both sides of the Atlantic. I can't explain it. I have no explanation how this occurred. I'm just telling you that the history as we're being taught in school is far too simple and not very accurate. There's, 
there's too much evidence that the, the past in North America is very complex, involved mixing of peoples, movements of peoples, uh, very uh, vital societies that were that undergoing change. They were not the staid, conservative societies that are painted in anthropology books that stayed in the same place all the time for 2,000 years. That was definitely not the case. And it's also not the case they were pure American Indians. They were mixed into a lot of other people. Okay. Well, you do mention that someone described hold on a second I'm trying to get to the right page that Taka Hawley is a Muscogee Creek word for freckled oh yeah yeah, so, uh, okay, even yeah, though, you know, we may... Chocolate, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, um, thank you for correcting me. Uh, but, but it, okay, it's... Okay, I, I've got just, to go through it, because I, I stopped there, and I, I for many years, I said, well, chocolate, because the le is actually re. It's, uh, when mm-hmm. uh, Native American pronounced R-E, it sounded like L-E to to Englishmen. So when you see an mm-hmm. L-E at the end of the word, it's really R-E. R-E is the very, very pre-Indo-European word for kingdom or tribe and for king. Like the word for king in Spain is rey. Well, it's derived from R-E, which was the, for a kingdom or a nation. It's a very ancient word. And it's really found all over northwestern Europe, all the way to Scandinavia. So tokare means, I said, well, tokare Ray, okay, what does toka mean? Well, that doesn't make any sense. It turns out toka means principles. It means principal people in Gaelic, modern Irish Gaelic. You said toka ray, it would be oh. Or you could say toka gay, which means the same thing. It means principal people. Well, it, it's you know, just very interesting that you know, freckled people with Reddish brown hair. Um, also very you, tall. They were Scots. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, the Tuckabachi Creeks. They became known as the Tuckabachi, which means uh, the descendants of, of the, the, the Toko people. And they were known for being very tall, very brawny, and with reddish brown hair. So they were a mixture of Native American and, and Scots. And their their areas of Northern Ireland and, and Western Scotland were these. Scottish guys mm-hmm. are brutes. I mean, they big. They're you know they're giants, very powerful, and uh, that's and that's what the the Toka were known for: is being tall, freckled, very muscular, and the most ferocious soldiers in the Creek Army. Um. Well, it, no, it, it, you know, we may not. Have you know, you know, we we do have DNA evidence, but you know we don't have um, a, a skeleton that was you know, unearthed that has you know my name is Sean O'Grady from Ireland, uh, you know you know a little placard on his chest, but 
the, the descriptions of freckled red-haired people just kind of points to one group, you know, one certain area of the world. It's just you know, through language or the languages that you are uh, getting back to the roots, to deciphering, uh, you are showing that there were uh, transatlantic migrations, but you know, with people, you know, coming from, you know, you say, uh, um, like uh, you know, Tabasco province and Mexico and other, uh, you know, Guatemala and other places in Central America. Um, what was the reason for all these people arriving in Georgia over thousands of years? What's attracting all these international uh, visitors to various places in Georgia? Obviously, it's still around because, you know, the Atlanta airport is the busiest airport in the world, and it's a crossroads. And I think that was just, just a, a creature of geography was a major factor, just just the shape of the lands and the ocean and the and the continents caused people to, to, to cross there. You know, there were paths to crossing, just like here where I live in the Coochie Valley. We have three or four major trade paths that intersect here. Uh, the second thing, of course, in North Georgia was the gold and the diamonds and the sapphires and the rubies. But most importantly, it was the purest gold in the world. And they said in olden times, they just picked it up off the ground. It was, it was kind of like a fairy tale land where you could get rich by just picking up gold as you walked along the floor of the forest and take it back home and sell it. Okay. And just to show that uh, history repeats itself. Uh, Atlanta was the Hartsfield Airport, the busiest airport in the world. Um, you know, you, you do go into detail about Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what's um, you know my one uh, trip through Atlanta was. Uh, Whatever interstate that that was to take me to Hartsfield Airport, but um, you know, so I I was probably close to Peachtree Street, but I I was not actually on it. But what's the importance of Peachtree Street? It gets its name from a creek town called Standing Peachtree that was up on the Chattahoochee River. Um, north northwest corner of, of of Atlanta, and it, the road, uh, the trail that went to Standing Peachtree was a principal trading trail that interconnected the Appalachian Mountains with 
Florida. And so that's why Peachtree Street developed as the main drag through town in the 1800s, and then now it's more historic and a, and a prestige address for companies building large buildings. But it just gets its name from a town that was where, where several trade routes crossed. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it, it was just a uh, very important trading path. Yeah, uh, it, it yeah, just, yeah, I just think it's <laughs> interesting what you said. It, it, it's like you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same type thing. There's, uh, <laughs> history repeats itself. Yeah, you know, I thought that was like one of the best examples. Yeah, you know, that. The, the street probably hasn't, the actual uh, direction of the street probably hasn't changed in hundreds, if not you know thousands of years. But uh, mm. you know, uh, you get some you know, uh, buildings lining it now, but um, yeah. but uh, uh, overall, it's probably the same same thing as it has been for hundreds of years. I, I just thought that was r- really fascinating. <laughs> and you know, we also, you know, you also have examples of uh, uh, some Hebrew words that have been uh, detected in the native languages. And you know, some of that's uh, you know, like you're actually setting up a show in a couple of weeks with uh, David Brody, but the, uh, that you know, the um, story you have on page forty-two about Liu Bay. Let's look it up here. I'm getting a book out here. Yeah, it's on page forty-two and. Also, again on forty nine. See, I actually read. I'm impressed. <laughs> you know something uh, scary about this book? I wrote it when I had the had uh, COVID. I had COVID before they knew what the name. I didn't have a name for it, and I had no idea what's going on. But I had fits doing the book because it. I had the encephalitic form that came in through as an eye infection. In fact, that's what most of the people in this area had was. Eye infection, then severe brain headaches and infections, and so I had trouble remembering. And I would type, and I would forget what I was typing, literally. So, so that's my excuse for having to look up my own book. What you're talking about? Forty-two, forty-two, and forty-nine. Now, I'm not sitting out at all. That's, that's, don't tell anybody that. I'm just, it's just the, the COVID. See. Okay, Luby. Oh, Luby. You're talking about the the, the the Jewish girl. Oh, yeah, that's a good story. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Luby is a um, means love. It's a uh, Ashkenazi Jewish name primarily. Sometimes he's very Sephardic. It was most common in Eastern Europe, and it was generally the name given to the firstborn daughter of a rabbi. Now she put next to it 1715. That's Highly significant because that's the Yamasi War in which all whites were being killed in the southeast. So evidently, Luby was on the run. Either she'd already been captured and she was going to be held as a slave, or she was uh, 
not captured and she was telling that running from the Indian war parties and was just leaving a message to tell people that's where she was or she'd been through there. Okay, and what she she also left her initials at the um Track Rock Gap. Well, that's where she left them. Mm-hmm. But you have to understand that at that time, there were many traders living in near the Indians, and there were also gold miners in, in uh, near Track Rock. And there, most of the gold miners and the traders were Jewish. So that would have been very likely that they were escaping. She'd already been, it could be she'd already captured and they killed the men. They just didn't kill the girls. And... Um, or that they were that everybody was running when they got word that the whites were being killed. And the reason I know it's probably a girl is that she didn't know how to write in or you. She got it backwards, and this indicates she didn't wasn't fully educated in English. So I just suspected that she was a, and also being a, a younger girl, she'd be less likely to be scalped. They did scalp women. They're less. They're more likely to keep a what an adolescent. Or child uh, as a as a slave. Okay, well, they make a good movie. You can make you have a free hand that you know the writers could come up with a, a million different plots of the story behind that rock. But, but it'd be an interesting movie. It's a part of history that's not even mentioned in our textbooks. But of the fact that we have so many people, in particular of, of, of Jewish heritage, living in the Appalachians during the 1600s. And this well, is one um, of them, Luby, who was on the run or else was captured, worrying that she might be scalped at any moment. No, no, it, it, it's, it, it really is a, a fascinating story. I'm, I'm work, uh, you know, uh, one of my uh, friends does have um, uh, books on, um, you know, uh, you know ba- basically white Indians. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, settlers uh, captured as you know, probably children. Uh, they were, um, you know, spent maybe uh, the next ten years in uh, the Shawnee tribe, and mm-hmm. uh, there there was, uh, uh, you know. S- some treaty, say at Fort Pitt, uh, where, where the you know kids were supposed to be returned and they didn't want to uh, go back to their families. They, uh, you know, they prefer to stay with the uh, the native families that raised mm-hmm. them. So uh, I'm I'm working, uh, you know, trying to find a date for uh, you know the. That author, but you know what you're saying. You know, I've encountered that. Uh, ho- hopefully, I can get get a show, uh, you know, before the end of the year on that topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, It'll be with Alan, but yeah, it it, it really is a fascinating subject. Um, it, but yeah, you know, since, since we are are talking about the track rock uh, gap. Um, I mean, spend a little bit of time talking about the many geographical features 
in Georgia. Uh, it, it, it looks you know, the track rock gap uh, uh, j- just looks like <clears throat> it should be some uh, major ceremonial place. You know, just, you know, you have a distant mountain between you know, a saddle of two other mountains. Uh, it, it, it just looks like a, a very panoramic, scenic type place. It is, and, and it's winter. It's the views on top are absolutely incredible. I mean, it could be, it should be a national park. But I have to tell you this: the uh, the way that both the Isity and the Tantal Mayas expanded their territories, they would establish fortified trading posts in mountain gaps and then go up the mountain above it with terraces. So it is a classical Isity Creek colony where they, they go to a key mountain gap on a on a trail and then they build terraces above it for producing food and they put soldiers in fortified positions near the trail so everybody has to pay a tax. Coming through their land, and over time they built small towns and then larger towns of supplied with all the the produce of the land. Hmm. Okay. Uh, it, I'm, I've just been. You have some great photos in there. Thank you. And and um. No, I I thought Indian Springs was another really fascinating place as well. Let's get if um, okay. I can the, the people outside of Georgia have no idea what you're talking about, but Indian Springs it, is roughly in the center of the state. It's just north of Macon. It was considered very sacred to the creeks, but it's not a regular springs. It's basically a river coming out of the ground. It's that scale. It's not. I've seen some some places like that in Michoacan, Mexico, that are of the scale of that. That's the only place in the world I've ever seen entire rivers just coming out of the ground and forming a series of waterfalls. Well, no one has been able to con to, to translate the name of the creek coming out of Indian Springs, and it took me several years, but I finally figured it out. Let's get it in here. Get my book here. It's on page 153. I mean, well, it, I had, I thought it was earlier. Um, well, you have, the you have, you have the, I was going to tell you the meaning of the, the original name for Indian Springs. Get it here. It. Well, it's on 152 and 153. It is a state park. I'm trying to get the name of that strange and un un in trans translatable stream through there. Let's see. This is a large book, folks. It's not it's not a pamphlet because I did it is an encyclopedia where I tried to cover as thoroughly as possible all the place names and all the general mm-hmm. tricks of history that I've learned through the years so I could Pass it down to subsequent generations. Mm. Um, oh, you, you did a great job. It, it, it's very informative. You know, I just want to just touch on a number of things to uh, 
Yeah, uh, what the listeners know, uh, you know, what's out in like the Indian Springs State Park and the uh, some the Etowah Mounds. You know, we'll get to that and Colomoki Mounds, mm-hmm. Rock Eagle. You know, so you know, we'll just touch touch on a little bit of everything about all you know, all the all this history that is there to explore. Just you know, get get out and. Uh, if you happen to be in Georgia, make a little day trip and see some of these places. You know, it's Indian Springs worth seeing. It's it, uh, it's the oldest state park in the United States, by the way. It was the first state park. Dates back to the right after the Indian removal, and. Uh, it has a building on it that was built by a creek leader as a hotel. You don't think about Indians building hotels. But, again, that's what I try to tell people. You can't. The Hollywood mindset of what Native Americans did and didn't do doesn't fit here. It's uh, much closer to Mexico and culturally, although we did not have slavery and we did not have human sacrifice. It seems that when they came up here, the ancestors of the Creeks did away with the best, the worst part of being in Mexico, which is mainly slavery, chronic warfare, and human sacrifice. And uh, in fact, the Creeks had a law that you could not shed either the blood of a human or an animal within two miles of a Creek sacred site or a temple. You don't hear about that. You don't read. That's another one of the things you don't read in history books. Uh-huh. I found the name of the creek. It's right at the beginning. I was looking too far back. A booth. This is the worst. This is on page sixty-seven. This is the worst word I ever came across. It took me years and years and years to translate this. Uh, it's called a booth Lacusta Creek. It is the original name of Indian Springs and the stream that comes out of it. There it is, and there it is, and I I, uh, I had to re- understand how the the whites mispronounce Creek words and how the Muskogee Creeks mispronounce Isti Creek words, and so a Bushwakusta is really a Paracusti, and that's the uh, that is the name used by the people who look like eggheads. Uh, supersized heads that you find down in Peru, but also were up here too. You know what I'm talking about? They're very, very tall and had red hair, and they had heads yeah. that looked like space aliens. Well, that was their mm-hmm. name, the Paracusi. So that means that the reason they considered it sacred is that at some time in the past, these super brainy, super tall eggheads from Peru lived there, had a village there, and I guess they were the rulers or something like that. They obviously with their brains they went to the top of the class. And so that's what it means. They took a long time though. But I had to put my mind in the in the place of how an Englishman would hear Muskogee Creek and then how Muskogee Creek would hear Initiative Creek and how they would it would distort how the word was spelled. Well it, it, Indian Creek sounds like it was a 
really unique place. You know, kind of, kind of like a Mammoth Cave with the, you know, just the yeah, water, just kind of, and, and it just seems like um, it, unusual natural features like that. Uh, it seemed like you know, there's a good chance that there might be some kind of um, um, sacred site in, in Indian Springs case. Um, you know, the councils of the Creek uh, Confederacy were held there. Yes. And I imagine there were all types of religious ceremonies held there in earlier days. It's a spectacular site, though. It's not in the mountains. It's as I said, it's in the Georgia Piedmont near Macon, but the site of having these, it's basically a river, come out of the side of a hill and make a series of waterfalls. It's just, it's just very spectacular. It's not your regular spring. Yeah, there are also, um, you know, I found that, like, Sapelo. Island, uh, what was another interesting place? Uh, right, I'm going to that up again. Yeah, the, um, yeah, there uh, islands. I think are fascinating, and um. On page two sixteen, you write the island was inhabited almost con- yet almost continuously by Native Americans from the Ice Age until the seventeenth century, and then and we get into the the comet of five thirty nine A.D. I love stuff like that. Yeah, but uh, but but that island was j- just a. Um, Sounds just a very lengthy history. Um, I like what you know, what you, how you handled that little section, and then you worked in the comet. Yeah, um, this is nothing that's left out of books, but the scientists are aware of. I, I just don't understand this. I don't create a lot of this new information except right around where I'm living. I am doing basic research here in northeast Georgia. But elsewhere, I grew on others, and I found out about the comet through a professional uh, geological website and, and professional magazine that they discovered that either a comet or a large asteroid hit off the coast of Florida in roughly 538, 539 mm-hmm. A.D., and that it... Then I started looking, and then this is something that geologists didn't bother to do. I don't know why, but I might thought, well, let's look for sea evidence of a, of a tsunami. And sure enough, beginning north of Jacksonville, you see a, a residue ridge left by this a massive tsunami that's up to 85 feet tall now, and it's ellipsoid. What the comet did off the coast of Florida is it destroyed the islands off the coast of Florida. That's why there's there are no islands from King Canaveral northward. They were just the soil was washed and pushed into the mainland. 
in Georgia is where it left the uh, the large debris ridges that are up to 85 feet tall, and they they extend up to just near Savannah. You can I could even pinpoint yeah. where the object struck the ocean because of the ellipsoid, because it had a there was enough of curves I could just calculate the uh, the, the original axis point. Cool. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that, uh, that's some really interesting information. I, I, I wasn't aware of that either. Uh, you know, when you were talking about the uh, comet uh, and tsunami would have um, obliterated the islands. Yeah, near it would have the obliterated the islands. It also would have flooded all of South Georgia. It would have killed everybody. And it was a, I think it was an asteroid. It was, it was something, a monster. And uh, it, it was so, it produced so much debris that the Maya civilization went into a uh, dark age for 50 years after it hit. So it had an impact on it. And the um, Swift Creek culture disappeared from South Georgia but permanently. They were killed by the tsunami. So it had an impact uh-huh. culturally on, on a wide area of the Americas. But no one mentions it outside of the geology textbooks. It's you never see it in an anthropology book. They're just not even aware because they don't. Apparently, they don't communicate much with their kindred professions. Well, it, that's a, it, it, it's really uh, interesting story. So. How people adapt to catastrophic events. You know, we're covering that uh, mm-hmm. on, on last week's show. Um, you know, maybe people who were enemies actually have to become friends to survive mm-hmm. in, in such a cataclysmic e- event. Uh, I, I like stories like that. It's uh, a really interesting to. See the impact on uh, people and ha- how they react. But um, yeah, and um, we have so many listeners uh, you know, who who really enjoy uh, stories about uh, the mounds and what was found in them, mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do. Um, yeah, give, give us a uh, few, few photos of the statues found at the Etowah Mounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, that's another uh, state park. Uh, you know, you know, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about uh, the amazing artwork that was found. Yes, I'll be glad to. Uh, first, yeah. we'll do the etymology, since this is about my etymology book. Etowah is the Anglicization of the Muscogee Creek pronunciation Etara, which means principal town, which is derived from the Ishiti Creek word Itula, which is the, means the same in both Ishiti Creek and Itzamaya, means principal town. Uh, Tula is derived from the original name of Tetawakan. So it... Um, it, what it's saying is that the people that settled there can trace their roots to Tetawakan. The art there, uh, I'll backtrack. 
so people understand how I know anything about this. I received the first Barrett Fellowship from Georgia Tech, which is a um, for the architecture school, and and at the time was meant to fund a full postgraduate degree, equivalent back then around seven thousand dollars, which today of seven thousand dollars is is like a thousand dollars back then. That was a lot of money back then. Enabled me to spend an entire summer traveling and studying in Mexico under the direction of Dr. Ramon Pena Chan, who was the curator for the Museo Nacional de Antología de Mexico in Mexico City, an internationally famous archaeologist. Well, the first time I was able to meet with my coordinators, which was Dr. Pena Chan and Ignacio Bernal, who was director of the uh, Instituto Nacional de Antropología y Historia, Mexico. So he, he kind of outranked Ramon at the time. And uh, shortly, I, I brought with me two books because I was told by the Mexican consul in Atlanta is customary in my situation, the academic, to, to give a book to a professor who's going to help you not be paid for it. And they weren't. It, it, just, it, was, it was an extra on their part. Well, Ignacio Bernal quickly figured out I was not from a rich family who was going to donate money to their digs. Uh, I was not even a, a professional architect. I was just an architect student who was even just beginning to learn Spanish. And so he looked at his watch and said, uh, idiotas, and walked away, and I never saw him again. On the other hand, Dr. Pena Chan liked me. He was, like me, he was part Native American. His mother was Maya. My mother was Creek, and then my father had Creek, too. Um, and so I gave him both books. They were one book was on the of the southeastern Native Americans, the other book was on of Georgia. And then I was waiting at the out, and I finished my meeting. We shook hands, and he turned down my syllabus of where I was going. He, he thought the professors at Georgia Tech were just trying to make a tourist out of me. And in fact, he asked me, "What do you want to be a a tourist, or do you want to be someone who knows how to restore buildings?" and has a, a sound knowledge of the history of Mexico, and I said the latter. And so they tossed my syllabus from Georgia Tech into the trash can, and I was to come back the next day and pick it up. But that was about the limit right then of my involvement with them. Well, I got to the edge of the bus stop on the plaza, and his beautiful graduate assistant, Alejandra, came running out there, Mr. Thornton, Mr. Thornton, wait, wait, wait. And then she said, uh, Senor Pena Khan wants to know if you can eat lunch with him. Oh, big gap. And this is this is like uh, a rock star, or uh, it's hard to or the president of of Amazon asked you to have lunch with you. I mean, he's internationally famous. I said, mm-hmm. yeah. I said, no, I'm I'm too important to do things like that. No, actually, I did say yes instantly. And so I went back there, and he was intrigued by my books. He said he never knew all this was in the southeast, and particularly in Georgia. And he came upon the marble statues from Etowah, which are quite famous, the pink marble statues. And he asked me, uh, Ricardo, why do your Indians make marble statues out of Maya slaves? And I didn't know quite how to do that. I didn't know how to answer. Actually, I couldn't answer almost all the questions he asked me that summer. But, you know, that's how you learn. That's how he taught was to ask questions. And it was, a, it was a puzzle to me for decades as I was through the years. And what did he mean by those look like my slaves? And now what I understand he was telling me was that the founders of Etowah were 
probably uh, commoners and escaped Maya slaves. Mostly males, because he said the potter was nothing, and Edward was nothing like what the Maya commoners made. But so it's probably as men's fled from Yucatan when there was a revolt or a collapse of a city, and then paddled across to Florida or, or paddled up the, the Chattahoochee River, and then over to Etowah, and that's how it got started. Okay, and it's, it, it was Etowah was uh, primarily. Used between you know what about a thousand A.D. to nearly sixteen hundred. And then, I think it's later. Uh, I that's another story that they've the exhibits at the museum now do not reflect what the archaeologists discovered in the nineteen fifties. And the reason I know that is that uh, one of them was. Uh, Arthur Kelly was kind of my first mentor. I did work for him in college, and he's the one that gave me the endorsement that got me the, the fellowship in Mexico. And then I had his partner was Lewis Larson, who was my professor of introduction to anthropology at Georgia Tech. So there's some things in the exhibit are just not right. Like they said, the museum says that people came to a place where there would never been a town before, around 1000 A.D. in built town. Well, they actually found a chain of towns going back to maybe even 800 B.C. at that same site. And they also found oh. that were humans, uh, there were creeks living there at the site until the uh, probably early 1700s. Okay, so yeah. it, it, it it's like many... Say Hopewell sites in the Ohio Valley uh, or Greater Ohio Valley that the Hopewell sites were built on top or very near Adena sites, which are very uh, close to archaic. Uh, So it's just multiple layers of um, uh, utilization of a, a place. And and speaking of something like uh, that, just uh, crossed my mind. There, there was um, that might be a good uh, segue now into where you did write about. Uh, Coos being one of the uh, principal, uh, you know, you were t- had spoken about principal towns, and Cusa was yeah, one of the capitals. That was visited by the uh, Hernando de Soto expedition in, in the summer of 1540. Okay, well, it, in, in one of Alan's books that I, I've been, you know, like the white Indian author, um, there, there's a Coose Hawking, Delaware uh, village in Ohio. I was just wondering if that root word of Coos, C-O-O-S, 
showed any uh, kind of uh, connection between, like, Georgia and Ohio? Well, the problem is the original, you just, just what she was pointing out at the beginning of the program, the original indigenous American word was kosha. And that they substituted kusa, you know, a hard, hard C sound of T-U-S. And uh, so they they never, that was kind of a symbolic way because the, the English had trouble saying the word kosha. So it may not be the same word at all between the Kusawking and then the, and then the, uh, the word down here. Okay, I I I, I did not know, and I I just wanted to ask. I I just thought it was very interesting. Uh, you know, there is the Pocatelico uh, sample, and you know, there is a Pocatelico. Uh, West Virginia as well, and it, you know, it, there's you know, just more that East Coast similarity in words. It it, it, it is you know, just just really a fascinating subject to see how all these people were. You know, there was a lot of movement. You know, uh, that's, that's what I'm trying to get across to people. It was not a; these were not conservative societies. It's a little, it's constant movement, and uh, it's the problem is that the over the many, many decades, the anthropology professors have created a discipline or body of knowledge that's easy to teach because it's mainly all they have to do is just put something out. A summary of what you've been reading here, and then um, just skip what actually happened. <laughs> you know, and you don't even mention these other people. That's generally what we have in the books. This this whole culture is never mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, well and we're trying to cor- right correct that. You know, so they, it's a miss. You know, like you said, it was Coos the same thing. Well, actually, the word was culture, but. That's symptomatic of that how they erased these, the cultures of the people who who actually were here when the British colonists arrived, and they pretty soon could have figured out how to use cannon, I think, <laughs> and pointed it at the British ships. Well, you know, uh, you know, just I don't, I don't like the idea of just making people just suddenly. Disappear. That's you get that. You know, one of the most recent examples is the uh, Land of Lakes butter. You were, you know, the uh, native girls now disappeared from the as the logo. No, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I didn't think the, the the logo was offensive at all. But uh, no, I, I, I just I guess somebody I, 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 maybe somebody up there in, in Minnesota thought so. Yeah, it's, I I don't I I just didn't I, I didn't find it offensive. I I don't know why why that was done, but you know she she's gone. I I just don't like the idea of just we just make people that you know the elite think that they are um 
you know, beneath them. We just make them mm-hmm. magically go away. So, uh, 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 I'll, I'll save that for another sh- <clears throat> another show. But you, you know, you know that rock eagle mound is yes. Yeah, you know, uh, 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 I, I I've seen uh, yeah, uh, you know photos that you know it pops up every once in a while. It's like one of the best examples of uh, rock. Uh, mounds, but um, and, uh, you could give us a little bit more uh, detail uh, about that and you know, spend a little bit of time talking about that. Okay, it's actually the two mounds. Is a, they call them the Rock Eagle and the Rock Hawk, and I don't think they are. I think those are Appalachian shrines, and the reason I do they they, they both both the app. The Rock Eagle Hawk and the uh, the Rock Hawk, Hawk I think they call it, have white quartz on top, and that's a key indicator of a Appalachian shrine. They put they put the white rock on the top of everything, both mounds and, and terrace complexes. So, and another thing to be known is that the people in Mexico would. Uh, in the southwest called Guerrero province, they had a religion in which they worshipped vultures and the dead, and they would put their dead on top of these stone carns in the same manner that the Buddhists in Tibet do today, and the the uh, hawks and and eagles and and uh, vultures of of Tibet. Himalayas and that's here in, in Tibet would eat the flesh of these bodies. So I think that's what was going on down in Mexico. Possibly even they put bodies on top of the the belly of the the rock eagle and let the vultures come down and eat the flesh. Yeah, uh, uh, that seemed to be then they uh, you know pretty common uh, during like. Uh, Adina uh, times, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. you, know, you just have the uh, uh, bones uh, to bury at some point after their uh, the flesh. But uh, yeah, uh, you have a really nice aerial photo of it. There's uh, with the beak points directly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. South, you know, so so there is seems to be a, uh, some kind of implied archaeoastronomy feature to that site, and the tail is uh, aligned with the winter solstice sunset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Looks like a very neat place. And the other parts that interest you, you can you can go outside of Georgia. I just, of course, that's the focus of the the book. But I uh, have a, my interest levels far beyond just the bounds of the state. If you have any other questions, but uh, uh, well, um, yeah, since we're speaking about hawks um, or uh, you know the and, and the vultures. Um, mm-hmm. w- Now I'm trying to 
look through my notes real fast. Um, the during the uh, Trail of Tears fiasco, there the. Um, there was the, the the loss of the vulture type uh, folklore. That's um, oh, page, oh, there we go. So on, on the next uh, page two ten, mm-hmm. the painted vulture was yet another victim of, of removal of Native Americans from their ancestral lands. So, you know, we we you know, we do need to take into consideration all the different uh, English and Spanish uh, colonizers, as well as uh, e- events like uh, um, you know the force. Uh, removal of people from their homelands and how much of this language and culture were lost since you know the people did not have the rock eagle symbol to uh, as part of their their culture anymore to Go back to uh, you know they knew all the inner like the inner workings of it like the winter solstice alignment uh, you know how, how many generations does it take to just kind of work its way out of the consciousness of the, the people who no who who no longer had access to um su- such a ceremonial place yeah and they didn't have altars. It's what part of the problem was that the um, in the old days, you know, the many of the tribes in eastern North America burned off the underbrush of the forest each late uh-huh. winter, you know, when it's dry, and this would kill animals. And so these painted vultures thrived off of eating roasted animals that are found in the forest after a fire, and that didn't uh, cease to occur by the on Christmas, and so you had all types of things mixed in. But basically, the painted vulture could not live where the the creeks were relocated to. The climate was not their cup of tea, and so they 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 stayed where their quarry was. And the people went west and found new vultures. Okay, well, uh, just, you know, just just something to. For the listeners to consider, it brought up a very valid point. But um, and you know, say with the um, you know, for looking at some of the computer graphics, like for example, you had the overhead shot of the Rock Eagle Mound, but you also uh, did a lot of computer graphics of um, like of the actual mound site and mm-hmm. 
where the village was laid out around it. Uh, mm-hmm. can, can you tell us a little bit of, of, about you know, the artwork that you did for your book, and Native American Encyclopedia of Georgia? Most of those illustrations came from earlier books. So they have, I wrote a book on on the creek architecture, oh, I guess about eight years ago now, time flies, but I took illustrations from there and some of my newer illustrations since then. Um, but basically, as uh, I, I was from the beginning, I was treating creek as a, as a, a significant form of architecture, and it is. You know, they, they were capable of building enormous buildings uh, 200 feet wide, 400 feet long for for dances and things like that. So that's what I did. And at that time, I studied the archaeological reports of archaeologists. Uh, went on site when I could, and then made made uh, notes of where I found things that were significant in, in the bodies, the physical appearance of the of the uh, people who live there. And it varied. Each part, each division of the Creek Confederacy and, of course, the South itself, they had their own architectural traditions. They had their own types of town plans. There just was not one town plan. And you get that uh, that effect when you read canned history textbooks or read national journal journalists, you know, reporters, talking about the subject. They make you think there was just one style of town, but there was. There are many different styles. And each educational system of the young people raised different values for the, for the different divisions of the Creek Confederacy. They had traditions of architecture that were different. They had maybe even different ceremonies. And so that was reflected in the way they did their towns and buildings. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Explanation. Dive into another uh, topic here. Um, Oh, you you did bring up an interesting point about uh, your discovery of the Creek Migration legend, and it it was nearly lost for just about. 300 years into... Oh, uh, yeah, 285 years, I think, exactly. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your... another aspect of your uh, work to uh, preserve uh, Creek history. Uh, what's the story there with the uh, Creek migration legend? Okay. Um Relations between the Creeks and Georgia were excellent, especially during the early period. There was, a, in fact, both leaders of both sides encouraged marriage, which is very unusual for the United States. That both the Creeks and the British leaders encouraged people to marry people of the other race, which is, you know, racist America. That would have been quite revolutionary at the time. Um, and so uh, James Edward. Oglethorpe, who was the supervising trustee for Savannah, invited uh, a, some members of a village that was adjacent to, to Savannah uh, 
whose chief was was Tomochichi, which is written in Tomochichi in English, but it's Tomochichi, and it means uh, trade dog, or roughly it means an itinerant, itinerant uh, trader. Uh, he brought him to England, and he came back, and they then they sent rave reports of how big and sophisticated England was to the high kings and officials of the Greek Confederacy, and so they sent word they'd like to visit Susanna themselves to initiate a friendship treaty. And so what we have here is a verbatim transcript of of the the high king of the Creek Indians speaking to the people of Savannah. It was taken in an early form of shorthand and then converted into um, cursive writing report, and the spelling was double-checked and assisted by a uh, Mary Musgrove, who's a very famous Indian woman, also known as Creek Mary in one of the books now being published now. And so she translated the Greek words spoken by the High King to the English and then especially to the uh, Thomas Christie, who was the secretary for the colony of Georgia. And they had a thing for each other, too. You could tell there's some little physical attraction between Musgrove and Christie. But anyway, he uh, he wrote all these things, and Christie also went around the colony meeting with elders of the various factions of the Creek Confederacy to get a better idea of what their culture was like and what their attitudes were towards English people and the French, who were arch enemies of the English at the time. Does that help you any? Yeah. Yes. No. I, and you, you know, um, you just mentioned Mary Musgrove. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, know, you have an interesting biography of her in your book. Yeah, he was. Um, he came from royalty. Her title was Hinaha, which means she's was sister of the high king. And that's a Maya word, by the way. It means sun lord in Maya. And they had the same office. Was the the siblings of the king were the were the the Hinaha. Um She married a white minister of all things, Thomas Bussenworth, and then and then later married a trader named uh, named Musgrove and kept her name. So between the two, she had very much immer- immersed herself in in British society, and she married high. She was considered royalty, so she married. Uh, the, some of the leading, twice of some of the leading men in Savannah, and was able to really get to know the English as people rather than as, as uh, strangers across the burning field, so to speak. Okay. Well, I I, I thought it was an interesting uh, biography and. It, yeah, another interesting character was Osceola. Yeah, Osceola. Yeah. Uh, he's famous, probably the most famous one of all. He was a was born in a village on the uh, Tallapoosa River, West Georgia, and then later never saw his his uh, white boyfriend, and he. Uh, Tell around some of his his uh, 
his uh, friends and whatever, and and um, I just think what he did. Well, he's a military. He says he's a military genius. Yeah. Um, he was, but it's hard to explain it as he translated into the into the English of what he was because it's, it's like he his name meant crier of I see or I mean or the you know, in other words he was the person who prepared the sacred black drink I see which is the same word in South America for there's there it's the same beverage same name both places by the way so he was not a chief he was not a chief warrior and in normal places and times he would not even be in combat he was a, almost like a priest I see Yehola and yet he became the premier warrior and leader of the Seminole in Florida his his mother and him moved down there at some date when they got tired of being close to the whites and he became an active soldier for the the Seminoles but he was never a chief he just led the, the fighters because he was so good at what he did he was never captured as per se. He was he was asked to come in to talk a peace treaty and the fort and he came in voluntarily under a white flag and they put him in in uh, iron chains and he died of a disease while he was imprisoned in Charleston. Probably from homesickness if nothing else. No, and, and I think he uh he's there's a little bit written about him in um, Brad Sanders' book that uh, you know we had him as a guest, really? I think in the sp- uh, spring, uh-huh. and uh, you know he's talking about uh, uh, you know Bartram's uh, uh, William Bartram's visits um, mm-hmm. throughout the southeastern colonies, and um, he has a photo of. Uh, Osceola's uh, grave in in there. Uh, yeah, I think it's at uh, the uh, 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 fort you were talking about. But uh, he also wrote uh, Andrew Dra- Jackson's betrayal of his own Creek allies in Georgia is what probably started Osceola on the path to being a hostile. Yeah, because he was rich. That's where he was living at the time. What happened is that there was a civil war between primarily Georgia Creeks and then primarily Alabama Creeks. It's really between progressives and conservatives. It's called the Red State War, and the majority were were the progressives. Uh, but the, the Red Sticks, a fort that contained both mixed blood Creek Indians and white people, their relatives and husbands, and they killed quite a few whites, uh, almost 500, maybe more than 500, in the fort. And that caused the United States to come involved in the war. So, in order, Jackson was whipped everywhere he turned as long as he was trying to fight the Creeks of white men. And then he made the comment it takes uh, 40 white soldiers to equal one Creek soldier. And he persuaded the the Creeks living in Georgia to come and fight as a separate army, 
under the leadership of a Creek chief. He was um, uh, a combination, I think, of they had Chickasaws, Creeks, Choctaws, and Cherokees in it. And there was a, a brigade or a division of the army, but Jackson was losing almost every battle until he had these Indians fighting for him, and they made the difference in them winning. But at the same time, he gave orders to the people back in Georgia to ransack the farms of the of the Creek soldiers from Georgia that volunteered for him. You know, they came home with their wives dead or raped, and the the uh, house wrecked and and fences knocked down, and their livestock dead or stolen. Okay. Well, and that's that's why there's such animosity among the Seminoles. They saw what happened to Creeks who fought for the United States. They were they were betrayed. You know, their farms destroyed, their wives mm-hmm. were killed, and raped. Their children were 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 carried off to captivity. And so they said, "Well, if you even anyone who even becomes your friend, you eventually destroy. So why be your friend to start with?" Well, uh, that. D- does put a lot of things into perspective, you know, all, and you know all, all the tr- you know you, you do have references to uh, all the treaties as well. Yeah, I mean, I can. It's a book, you know. I have a lot more detail, but I don't think people listening on the phone will, you know, it's, 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 some people it'll be such a boring subject to start with. But me to go down and list all the treaties and things like that. But yes, that did oh. occur. Yeah, I'm yeah, trying to keep no. it lively. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Speaking of lively, you know, we do have to mention Deliverance and The Walking Dead for you know for those who want a little bit of you know the woo woo uh, mixed in tonight. So we we can we're diverse. We can do, uh, uh, work in a little bit of everything into these uh, show, shows. So. Uh, uh, you know, The Walking Dead is filmed filmed in uh, cent- well, or parts Atlanta. of it are. It's actually been filmed a lot. It's filmed in Georgia, and then all the Walking cent- Dead cent- are. And the uh, yeah. they they go up in the mountains sometimes and film. I've, I've watched a bus full of zombies drive past my house when I lived in. <laughs> but really, I'm kidding. A bus, a bus full of zombies. Turned around my old side road, which is a one-lane road called Waters Road near the Longa. I don't know where they were going, but evidently they were filming a scene somewhere up in the mountains involving about thirty zombies in the mountains, and they'll, they'll show up in a lot of places. And of course, <laughs> uh, in fact, the opening scene of Walking Dead was filmed near the Longa on the expressway from Atlanta to Longa. I don't know if you remember a scene where there's Looks like thousands of cars parked on the road, abandoned. Mm-hmm. That that's near Delano, up in the mountains. Uh, now, Deliverance is a book that was uh, written in the same time I was at Georgia Tech, and the author and I James going, Dickey. James Dickey, exactly was my English teacher when he was writing the book. Oh, right. Yeah, there, and, Apple. And, you didn't and, know that, did you? I did, yeah, I did, I did not know that. He told us about he, it. He, but, go ahead. Did, 
Did, uh, didn't he play the sheriff at the end and yeah. telling Burt, Burt Reynolds, uh, we, we don't want you coming back here, you know, pulling this stuff, how, you know, how, how the guy uh, end up dream. You know, he, he was he, he was poking holes through uh, uh, John Voight and uh, uh, Burt Reynolds' uh, mm-hmm. story. So, so he he actually appeared in his own uh, a, a movie version of his own book. That's true. So, uh, and so, what so did mainly teacher. for our English class was show us slides of the southeast. I mean, that's the truth. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. He would read poetry, and he'd like the coast of South Carolina, Virginia, or Georgia, or the mountains of the Piedmont, and he would show color slides of places he'd been and then read poetry to it. And that was our English class. I'm not even sure how we got graded. I thought maybe he's got an A. I don't know. But uh, then later on when they were filming Deliverance, I was went up there several times with friends from my fraternity, and we watched the filming underway. It was quite impressive. Oh, uh, and, uh, which uh, which scenes did did you watch being filmed? The canoes, the canoes scenes when they're oh, going okay. down the gorge, and the Chattooga River. They're going down the gorge. Yes, oh. that's amazing. That's scary. <laughs> they were doing it themselves too. They didn't have they didn't have money for. Uh, Stuntmen! I could not believe they were sending their own actors down those this dangerous waters there. I'm a canoeist myself, but I wouldn't do that that place. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the three future A-list actors were, were you know they're risking their lives going down there in those canoes. And it's really dangerous. But those that was their that was not fake photography. I mean, that was the real thing. What you saw the canoes doing was actually what they did. I don't know if this has anything to do with with uh, etymology, but it's of interest to the the listeners and viewers. Yeah, and of course the uh, the plot of the book and the movie actually is based on Carter's Lake, in which I was kind of a sleazy little slip of ham with politics. They decided to build an extra lake beneath it that would be pumped back up to the upper lake. At night, and that was kind of going to make the economic justification for building the lake. Otherwise, it couldn't be justified. But in the process, they flooded the site of one of the largest Indian towns in North America, Coosa, which was where DeSoto went. You mentioned Coosa earlier. Mm-hmm. So much of the language, you hear the men talking. I know exactly what they're referring to, who they're talking about. They're talking about the dam being built and the Indian towns. You know, most people from other parts of the world saw the movie and didn't realize there really was a place like this that that was done. Well, okay. So you get you know, a behind-the-scenes look at the making of Deliverance. Yes, that's absolutely. Uh, and and in The Walking Dead. And, and when you, uh, I have not watched The Walking Dead being filmed, but I have seen busloads of, of zombies. And not, yes. Have you ever seen it, has a busload of zombies ever gone past your house? Um, no. No. See, eh, I got bragging rights. Yeah. Well, and people it, think I'm not, people think I'm crazy, but I really did. And uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, that's taking place in Sonoya, 
George. Sonoya uh, was the mother of a uh, very prominent uh, Creek chief, okay. William McIntosh. Uh, you might have heard the name. He was he was the first Indian to be made a brigadier general in the U.S. Army. He was commanded all of the Indian divisions of and brigades that fought in the Creek War and at the, and at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. But his mother was named Sonoya, and that was where uh, he grew up himself. And so they, now Sonoya is becoming the new Hollywood. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, the historic preservation in, in the area. It's a ideal location for yeah. Um, and they have, and then right north of there's Peachtree City, which I helped plan, the Plan City. That was a, one of my, my first project when I got out of. Uh, came back from Sweden for working, and so they have a large planned city of maybe forty-five thousand, fifty-five thousand people now. You know, very modernistic, so they can film scenes from movies there too. And it makes people think they're in California or somewhere. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Georgia's—that's one of the more interesting things that's happening here—is is becoming the kind of the new Hollywood. And it's not a joke. I mean, it is becoming the new Hollywood because they can turn around films quicker. And they kept on making movies when COVID started. They just what they did is they did daily COVID tests and inoculation and everything. I had to have a when I was on the History Channel program. I had to have a COVID test to even be on the site. As a rule of filming in Georgia. Mm-hmm. So they they kept on filming where Hollywood shut down for the better part of a year, and now they're way ahead, you know, in the production level, number of movies and TV programs they're putting out. Okay, well, yeah, and you know, we can stick with the uh, you know, woo factor a little bit, and you know, there is. Uh, you know, a, a little reference, or just a reference to the uh, little people. Uh, we can also get into the. Uh, uh, we don't have the. That's the Cherokee thing. That's that's after they drink whiskey. That's oh. Okay. Right. You want woo? I mean, we got woo here. We got. Um, I said yeah, like the a catfish. Well, we got big catfish, yeah, but we got we got extraterrestrials, and okay. uh, and it's part of the Creek tradition that where I live was one of the, the three places where we had uh, stargates. I didn't know where it is. I was, and in fact, some professors and scientists from Europe came here several years ago, and they did found a gravitational vortex over the over the part of the valley where the uh, stargate is. And there's another one. Each each place had a round mound that they they was on. And so the the other two places were near Elberton, Georgia, on the the uh, Savannah River, and then at Okmulgee National Historical Park near Macon. There's a round mound there, which was supposedly had a stargate on it. Wow. And according to our tradition, we were had um, friendly relations with very tall extraterrestrials who looked like humanoids. They didn't look a whole lot different than us. And on occasion, Creek priests would try to go into the Stargate. Some 
made it, but it was very dangerous for humans to go because the technology is more based for these people. But it was to the Pleiades, and they would, as they were traveling through space, they would see the galaxies and everything, and thus, on the symbol for the Creek Wind Clan is a galaxy surrounded by planets and stars. There's no way you know what a galaxy was by looking at the sky. It's only by going out into space and looking back at the, at the uh, with the galaxy, such as the, our own, the Milky Way, that you would know that they were a of that shape. So, and that's the cool. symbol of the Wind Clan is a picture, of basically, of space with the sun, the stars, the moons, and the galaxies floating around okay. it. Well, and I think it's in uh, Nancy Red Star's uh, Star Ancestors book. Um, she uh, covers some of the theories of uh, stargates, portals. Um, I think that those were located in Mexico. So there's like the the, the same type of uh, concept and astral traveling or you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, you want to call it uh, found in Mexico and mm-hmm. also found in uh, Georgia, uh, maybe uh, amongst the same people or uh, closely related. Well, I think it's why they came here. I mean, it's you know, I think I think they knew this place was here much earlier. That it was not like they were just heading north. They knew what was here when they were going, and because there are a lot of these cultural physical connections between the two areas that you don't find elsewhere. Um, and it, it's very possible the Mayans actually lived here earlier because they, their migration legend is they came from northern Europe and lived on a place where there was a lot of ice and they were chased out of where they were by ice giants. They came down the Atlantic coast of North America and then through Georgia and Florida and then crossed the waters until they came to a place that never had snow at all. And that became the those people, the modern people. Okay, and maybe in their travels they encountered the wog. Right. I was. Oh, you want to talk about the wog? Yeah, it, yeah. That uh, and we got to work in the. Uh, like cryptid angle too. Oh, we've got the, to do all the woo factor now, don't we? Yeah, it, well, yeah. In the last like eight, seven, eight minutes we have left in the show. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, the wog was the best we can determine did exist. It's not a myth, and it shows up being mentioned in several southern states. It was the Eastern American cousin of the uh, of the Commodore lizard in. In Indonesia, and every bit as big, maybe bigger. A very, but it's the same type of lizard. It was extremely big, and it was very dangerous. It could bite humans, and it quickly disappeared after the large herds of buffalo and elk disappeared from the state because there was nothing for it to eat. And also the deer population dropped. 
It ate the, the carcasses, the rotten carcasses. Uh, that's just like the like the uh, Commodore lizard in, in um, Komodo lizard in Indonesia. It only eats rotted flesh. So it only was dependent on eating the rotted bodies of, of buffalo and and elk. And when they died out, it was just not getting enough nutrition, and so the species died out. Okay, that makes sense. But you know, there there we are with. That uh, you know, a- Asian, uh, East Coast type connection that you, know, you mentioned you know, does show up in the DNA. Yeah. So you know, there's uh, you know s- similar species of uh, huge lizard. Uh, you know, living in two different parts of the world, I, you, know, you know, there's a little bit more of the evidence that we've been talking about of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, animal and people migrations around yeah, also the we world. We have a kind of diminutive cousin of the big, the big black lizard seal, and it lives only lives in areas where they're they're terrace complexes that the Mayas built so they have they brought it up from Central America. It's not as big as the main one but it's still not a, 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 a lizard that's native to this area normally. It's a Central American bird hunting and egg hunting and whatever lizard. Okay, cool. Yeah, you know, Is that Wolf Factor? I'm trying to think more Wolf Factor. We got into extraterrestrials. Uh, we got into giant Star- lizards. Stargates. People are going to think I'm telling a bunch of tall tales, but you'll just have to verify these things are really part of the history books. And I, what you're bringing up now was actually in history books written by eyewitness accounts, and then the information was not put into modern history books. It was intentionally left out. You know, uh, and, you know with the you know, four minutes left, uh, you know, there is uh, something that is uh, fascinating. It's another example of uh, maybe how the founding fathers uh, were actually looking at uh, Native cultures when they were uh, getting ideas for the Constitution. But uh, yeah, you know, we did talk about uh, principal towns a, l- a little bit, and yeah, the the uh, you know, capitals seem like they changed. And you know, it is in the Constitution that you know what yet sixty percent. Maybe maybe your dog. Barking, but we have we have a herd of uh, apparently a herd of deer coming into the yard, and my two. Hopefully, it's not a dog. They don't like having. They're trying to let me know that we have a herd of deer coming in. Okay. Alternatively, could be um, prowlers or bison or jaguars, but I got probably it's deer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just hopefully, hopefully it's not, not a a wog crawl, crawling up. Yeah, to... I hope it's not a wog too. But I guess anything's possible in these mountains. I mean, I have seen. Uh, here's a wow. Hey, it's a woo thing. Uh, Jaguar Mundi is a type of. Uh, tropical cat that the textbooks tell you only live in uh, Central America and Mexico. 
I have seen it in my backyard uh, hunting turkeys. It was definitely a jaguarmundi. It's like a skinny, smaller uh, ocelot. No, no, more like a, a jaguar in marking, but skinnier with a long tail, kind of a miniature mountain lion, but with markings like a jaguar. And they're uh-huh. here. And in fact, I have someone else who found one that was hit by a car in Alabama. And they're here. So we have, there's no telling what is up in these mountains that people don't want to miss. And I know we have mountain lions. But I definitely saw a jaguarmundi. Now I've gotten a since then I've gotten a a uh, video camera that will shoot film at night with a uh, night vision. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna try to to come in this winter. I hope I can film some so people get to see them. Beautiful animals. Very sneaky oh. though. Oh. Is that wool factor? Uh, yeah, it's um, satisfying my curiosity of woo in Georgia. Uh-huh. Hopefully the other uh, listeners are enjoying it as well. But uh, I hope so. Yeah, we have... I, I was afraid it was going to be too boring just talking about words. It varies with individuals. Obviously, I find it fascinating because to me it's like going into a time machine. You know, I, when I do these studies and I, you know, I just focus and cut out everything else, it's like going back in time several hundred years. But perhaps other people would not find it that interesting to unravel the histories okay. of the past. No, no, no. Uh, this has been a very informative show, and yeah, you know, we're down to about uh, a minute left. Uh, it, it, is there a website or a way people can order your books, or just go yes, to Amazon? Get my, I have my own website. My, my publisher maintains the website for me, and just Google Lulu dot com dash Richard Thornton. R-I-C-H-A-R-D-T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N, Thornton, and they, that'll Google will take you to my website set up by the publisher. And I have, I think, about 15 books I've written still available for them. It varies. Uh, all the books are going to be obsolete, I'll just to be honest with you. Anything written before I've made all these major discoveries up here in the mountains in the last three or four years is not going to be up to date. And if I, in fact, things have changed so much about Etowah, I'm just waiting to get all the information before I rewrite my book on Etowah Mounds. We have so much more information than I did when I started this journey back in 2006. Okay. Well, uh, you have to come back and talk about the Etowah Mounds. Okay. We're. I'll be glad to. I can talk about anything. Okay. Or the 4,000-year-old stone stone ring. Ceremonial center near me is probably built by people from from Scotland. <laughs> okay, is that a woo? Uh, we, yeah, uh, we we will do that. You know, we're just about out of time, so I just want to thank you, yeah. Richard, for being our guest. Thanks, Barbara, for uh, producing the show, and we'll see everyone next week. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Have a great weekend. Huh? Bye bye. Yep. Well.